This is Design Driven, the podcast about using design thinking to build great products in lasting companies. Whether you're running a startup or trying something new inside a Fortune 1000, the tools, methods, and insights we talk about will help you create things people love. And now, your host, Jay Cornelius. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I'm super excited to have an old friend of mine with us today. So today we've got Udian Jatar. He is the founder of Blue Earth Tribal. Um, everyone that I know and uh, calls him UJ, so we're going to call him UJ today. Um, fascinating guy. He was the global innovation director for Coke, global brand marketing at Procter & Gamble. He's currently teaching a class on innovation and transformation and differentiation at Georgia Tech. Um, we're going to have some good stuff to talk about today, so I'm, I'm super excited to have him on the show. UJ, how are you, man? I'm doing great, as can be at, uh, in these times. I uh, can't complain. Good to be here, Jay. Yeah, thanks for making the time. So let's just dig right in. Uh, first, like, how, did you, um, how did you get to where you are, and, and what are you seeing in the world today as you talk to the people that you're working with and your clients and your students at Georgia Tech? Well, that's a big question. Uh, the way I got to where I am now is doing door-to-door sales in India way back in 1989 in college. Uh, did an MBA, decided to learn how to do brand marketing, so went to PNG, uh, got recruited by Coke to launch new products. And what's kind of interesting in my background is somehow I became a new product launch specialist. So launched Pantene for PNG in India, water and uh, Sprite for Coke in India. They transferred me to Atlanta. And I ran a global joint venture between Coke and Nestle selling iced tea around the world. And I've noticed that our products kept getting commoditized uh, more rapidly than, you know, you could, uh, that then was reasonable for any brand marketer to, to, to encounter. So I started studying why some brands transcend their competitors and their categories and developed a model I call the seven disciplines of transcendent brands. Mm-hmm. And uh, and what I'm seeing today is essentially a acceleration of what I noticed. So in the '80s, when I was doing door-to-door sales, people would copy our products in you know three years. By the late '90s, it was six to nine months. With the internet and with you know uh, just the uh, easy access to information, easy access to technology, easy access to markets and finance, uh, the rate of commoditization just expanded uh, horrendously from a marketing and a business uh, and an entrepreneur's perspective. Mm-hmm. And what's happening now is just what was a small ripple became a big wave is now a tsunami because of, I think, COVID, because what's going to happen is a lot of companies that had a strong infrastructure for in-person promotion and marketing and business development, et cetera, are now having to significantly alter their mindset uh, in a more virtual world that is more likely than not to remain at pretty near the peak levels uh, that we have today. It's not gonna stay as high as it is, it's probably gonna come down but it's not going to go back to where it was before COVID. Yeah. And what I'm seeing with our students and our clients and the companies that we work with or are launching ourselves 
is we need to look at this moment as a opportunity to completely relook at our business and our business models. Right. Yeah. So in, in terms of uh, what's happened pre-COVID, the, the access to more information and the speed of which information can move around has made it easier. So what I'm hearing has made it easier for companies to mimic what they see people uh, being attracted to in the marketplace. And so it makes it harder for companies to differentiate. And so now we're seeing that um, the, the, the aggressive companies and the smart companies are using that to their advantage and, and creating their own differentiation based on the ease of access to consumer information and understanding what people want. Correct. So there are two forces at play. One is a reduction in the barriers to entry. And the other one is being able to see what others are doing and rapidly copy or improve on them. Right. And so when these two things happen at the same time and with COVID, the barriers to entry are going to be even more uh, diminished for companies that had, had assets and strengths in the pre-COVID world, which by diminishing those, by them having to catch up with, with startups or with having to change their business model, well, everybody's now at the same level. And so that's why I say it's going to even accelerate further. Right. Yeah. So do you see that as being an advantage for smaller companies, larger companies? Does it matter? I definitely believe it's much easier to start from scratch than to have to dismantle uh, legacy systems. Mm, yeah. Not because it is physically more difficult. It is psychologically more difficult for larger organizations. Sure. And larger, it's not and having developed several disruptive, transformative innovations across multiple Fortune 500 companies. I can tell you the physical aspects or the technical aspects and the capability aspects are no, there's really no handicap that a large company has. It's purely psychological. Yeah, so it's the it's kind of the organizational inertia that keeps them going in a direction and makes right. it hard to turn. They have the right. technical and the intellectual capacity to do it, but there's there's some kind of internal force that prevents them from shifting their mindset. That's right. Uh, as they say, a person with a hammer, every problem's a nail. Right. right. And they try to force everything through their you know through their existing mental models. So. It takes a relatively low cost, in fact, almost no cost, no risk uh, switch in mental model that allows them to be able to do transformative things, but it needs a real will and vision from leadership to implement that. Right. Yeah. So when we talk about no cost, like this doesn't appear on your balance sheet anywhere, but it's uh, of critical importance to the organization to be able to to sustain their differentiation and their transformation. Correct. Yeah. So I've heard you talk before about sustainable differentiation. Can you open that up a little bit, unpack that? What, how do you sustain your differentiation in changing market conditions? Yes. So when people think about differentiation, people's minds quite quickly devolve down to an idea that is known as the point of difference. Why are my unique selling proposition? 
And typically these things tend to be some feature attribute or ingredient in the product or solution or service that they offer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as we said, these things are increasingly transient because there's virtually nothing that you can invent that can't be copied sooner or later. And the other component of that is, even if they don't copy it, they can pretend like they've copied it and create confusion in the marketplace. That's uh, just look at the politicians of today, right? Right. Uh, This is an age old trick. If you can't convince somebody with logic or with fact, you can confuse them with, you know, with alternative facts as they are known these days. Right, right. Uh, And so creating sustained and meaningful differentiation on technology or features and attributes is really hard. And what we've learned uh, through hard knock, and and I say we, but it was my team at Coke and PNG and now at Blue Earth over the last 12 years that we've been in business, is that our minds are so easily pulled towards that physical, tangible point of difference that we ignore the most valuable point of difference, which is what I like to call the human experience. And what we've noticed, and, and you know, this is all laid out in, the, in my TEDx talk, is that companies and brands that were able to transcend the product and the category by creating a human experience that was about an emotional human-to-human relationship are able to withstand the lower barriers to entry, the faster imitation in the marketplace because people now want to buy your product because they like you and they like your vision Mm -hmm. and they believe in that rather than just because you have the latest gizmo. Mm -hmm. And that gives you an insulation that allows you to then spend a little bit more time and effort in creating the next innovation rather than kind of just speeding up your treadmill uh, to try to catch up and try to keep up or keep ahead by, you know, by a whisker. And you'll see this with Apple, you'll see this with Nike. These brands have been able to create that uh, situation uh, and that customer experience. So the challenge that I find that frustrates me a lot is that B2C companies are beginning to be much better. Now, there are a handful of companies that are absolutely brilliant at this. Most B2C companies are, you know, pretty average. Uh, And most of them are kind of following a playbook from the 20th century that is pretty much obsolete now because the marketing and business playbook of the 20th century depended on and was used to a certain level of insulation from rapid uh, imitators. And it was insulated with fairly high barriers to entry. Mm -hmm. In the 21st century, they just don't exist. So that playbook doesn't work. But the people that are the worst at this are these so-called B2B marketers. They imagine that because now I'm selling to a human being who happens to wear a suit, and I'm saying that metaphorically, because they're in a business environment, Mm -hmm. they're gonna suddenly stop being human and are now going to be, need to be marketed to as if they are some kind of a robot. Right. And so you fill them with logic and data and information which does nothing but commoditize you because you are now exposing 
the facts and figures of your business, which are easy to imitate. And right. so then it comes down to price instead of trying to build a relationship. Right. Yeah. So essentially by, by ignoring the human component, you're commoditizing yourself, whether you want to or not. Correct. Right. Yeah. This is something that, that we talk about uh, with, with our clients when we do product positioning is even in a B2B transaction, you're still talking to a human and it's still right. an, an H2H transaction, if you will. Absolutely. And by thinking about, um, who that person is, the way that we think about it as actors and roles, right? So you have a, uh, one actor could play any role. It's like you as, you know, as, as a person, you are the founder of an organization. You might, you are also a professor at a school. You are also, um, you know, uh, you play roles within your family. You may have a slightly different role when you uh, interact with people socially, but you're still the same core person. And those beliefs um, that drive your decision-making um, exhibit themselves in each of those roles, even if they are in slightly different ways. And if we ignore that and we think that you're just another suit, then we've lost that personal connection. Absolutely. And in fact, you just uh, kind of reminded me of an analogy that I give when we do our training programs. Imagine you, you know, you're marketing to a person who's a you know, senior executive in a large organization. He or she leaves their house after having made their perfect espresso in their MLA machine that's slick and beautiful mm -hmm. in their kitchen. They get into their Model S Tesla, which is sleek and beautiful and has a phenomenal UI UX. Mm -hmm. They get out of the driveway, they drive into the office. And what you're trying to say is now they're going to be happy to enter an office that's all beige and gray and dull and boring. And now suddenly they're going to be interested in logging on to your software as a service and see a bunch of jumbled, crappy UI UX. Why mm. would they want to do that? Right. 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 But that's what people think they want. They want, uh, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a framework that we've developed, uh, Jay. It's called, we call it the transcendent human experience, which is, we deliberately don't call it customer or consumer because you know consumers are you know the direct to consumer B two C sure. customers are B two B customers. But we call it the human experience because if you can define what that is, then that becomes your rubric for for determining every touch point that that customer or consumer is going to experience throughout your entire organizational structure and every deliverable or uh, you know stimulus that you put out that a customer is going to perceive or experience right. and an analogy that i like to give uh, and it, it's again another framework uh, that we've framed uh, around this idea of an iceberg so think about great ui ux as that beautiful pristine little piece of ice that sticks out of blue azure waters that you can see from a distance and that attract you. But as you get closer, you can start seeing that, oh wow, there's a little bit more down there under the water and the water is pretty clear. But deep down, you know, that massive is full of all kinds of, you know, it's a massive thing. It's got you know, uh, lots of flotsam and, you know, dirt and dying and organic and inorganic things stuck underneath. Great consumer brands, have learned to communicate around the pristine tip of the iceberg, 
which is your purpose, your vision, your values, and your beliefs. B2B brands like to flip that iceberg upside down so you can see all the crap that's at the bottom of the iceberg. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and then you have to build a relationship with the company before you discover the beautiful human beings that build that kind of human experience for you at the bottom of the iceberg. And in the past, you know, you had salespeople, business development people that would take you out to dinner and nightclubs and sports events and all of that stuff has anyway started to dwindle and even being seen as not appropriate. Mm -hmm. A company like Walmart will not even let you take them out to lunch at a, at a McDonald's. And so your B2B business model has got to be now dependent on your UI, UX. It's got to be dependent on how you build a product and a service and, and the interface across all touch points that is as pristine as your Tesla Model S, you know, driving experience. Right. And consistent across all those touch points. Absolutely. And, and that's the thing, you know, the consistency is one of those things that people talk a lot about, but don't understand at all because they try to be consistent to something that is not easily measured. And they don't define what you're trying to be consistent to. Right. And that's why it's really important to understand the human aspect and what is the emotional signature of the experience that you're trying to create. And once you know what that is, it becomes much easier to internally scale. Because when I say scale, quite often you'll have one or two people in the organization that are really great at being discerning enough to make a decision. Is this on brand or not on brand? Mm -hmm. But they typically struggle to explain that to everybody else. And that's why we like to define that transcendent human experience in practical measurable terms, because that then allows that to scale across the organization. So all departments, all functions and all external and internal facing uh, aspects of the company are all aligned to that transcendent human experience because you can't make your company internally be something completely different and then project a different point of view or perspective or values outside. Right. So one of the things that I've learned and what we try to implement is design your transcendent human experience because it doesn't even differentiate between consumer, customer, but even from employee, because that experience needs to be inward facing as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the way that, that we talk about it is, you know, the back office and the front office have to be uh, unified. They have to have the same vision of the customer and have to have uh, the same, um, uh, the same way of interacting with the customer, even though the back office probably is never going to touch that customer directly the things that they do absolutely impact the customer's experience or the human's Absolutely. experience. Correct. Yeah. So, you know, obviously over the past several months, you know, we're recording this in late July, 2020. Um, over the last several months, we've had massive shifts in all types of, of things. Uh, the economy is, is moving around rapidly. Consumer expectations and demands are moving around rapidly. So how do you, um, how would you say to advise somebody if they're trying to achieve this sustainable differentiation, how do they adapt to the things when they're moving so dramatically and so quickly? 
This is a really great question and because again, as I said, you know, the actual actions and investments that companies can make now are not difficult, but the difficult part is overcoming one's own mental models. And what I would say to companies today is that take this opportunity where things have slowed down. And if you don't have a leak in your boat below the waterline, then you can, then you should really think about this from a you know, blank sheet of paper and say, if I was to do this all over again, how would I do it? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Question how I do it and then rethink the what's, you know, this is from Simon Sinek's golden circle. And if they do that, they will realize that there's a real opportunity because there's ample funding available in the market to rethink and reinvest in building a system from the bottom up that is going to be more sustainable, more differentiated, and more powerful in delivering a, a great human experience to your customer or consumer or even to your own employees internally. Mm-hmm. The yeah. other component of this, Jay, sorry, is to, you know, we have a mantra at Blue Earth, which is dream massive, start time. There is a unprecedented new patience in investors and in, uh, you know, in management now to realize that, okay, everything that happened before COVID, we were rushing, you know, headlong from one step to another without taking a moment to step back and look across the horizon. This is the moment where if people don't do it now, they're gonna regret it because there are some visionary thinkers in almost every industry that I speak with that are actually taking this opportunity to, 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 they will, you know, as they say, never waste a crisis. This is the time to do that. Right. Yeah, so now, is an opportunity for people to rethink some of the things that they have been doing that might not be delivering the results they they want. And as you say, blank sheet of paper. So if we were starting over from scratch today, how would we do this knowing what we know now, you know, dealing with the world as it is today instead of the world that it was 12 months ago? Yeah. You know, what's kind of really interesting is we've done an analysis of S&P 500 companies from, uh, the late nine, uh, early 90s to today. And what we found is, especially from 2000 to 2018, post the dot-com bubble, just about 15 to 20 companies have contributed over 60% of all actual income growth. The bottom half of S&P 500 has traditionally been either flat or declining which tells you that, pre, and this is pre-COVID, okay? This is until right. 2019. And what the, the kinds of companies that were in the top, you know, one and a half percent of companies that contributed the you know, extraordinarily high, disproportionately high uh, income growth, are there are three types of companies in there. There's energy companies, there's pharmaceutical companies, and then there are what I call founder-driven companies. The founder-driven companies, by the nature of their visionary leadership, are always thinking 
five, 10, 15 years out and thinking about how they're going to dominate the world. Mm-hmm. The pharmaceutical companies, because of the long gestation period of investment and research and trials and FDA clearances, are made up of similar kinds of management as you'd find in other Fortune 500 or S&P 500 companies, but by the virtue of their business model, they're forced to think long-term and therefore they have landed up doing better than the average S&P 500 company by far. And then the third one, which is energy, again, because of the nature of the business, oil exploration, you never know when you're going to strike a well, you never know how long it's going to take, and there's massive capital investment and outlay. Mm-hmm. Of course, both pharmaceutical and especially uh, energy companies also get a lot of government subsidies and all kinds of uh, you know, support that ordinary companies don't get. So I kind of discount their success to quite a, quite a degree. So the learning from that to me for founders and for CEOs of S&P 500 companies now is emulate that thinking. It, it, it feels counterintuitive. It feels impractical or too idealistic to think five or 10 years down. But the practical results of companies that do that kind of long-term thinking and strategic, truly transcendent uh, you know, visions, the, 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 the proof is in the pudding. They have genuine, sustained, organic income growth as the other guys are just kind of staying in place through cost cutting, price increases, and mergers and acquisitions, which just kick the can down the road for somebody else to have to suffer the consequences of, but it doesn't move the needle at all. Right. So the, I don't know if you've seen this study um, for, there was also a, a, a a trend that showed that design-led companies, companies who were intentionally thinking about that human relationship and how they could differentiate based on serving their customers better outperformed the S&P by up to 20%. Um, and there's a chart. Yeah. So there's a quote here. This is the unavoidable fact of the digital revolution is that product design is intrinsically linked to the business model of the company building that product. And product design is centered around what humans need. So I'm, I'm curious how that um, kind of overlays or, or, or might uh, mesh with your thinking around that sustainable differentiation and, and how do you create that, that brand affinity, if you will, you mentioned Nike, I think earlier, right, how do you right. create that? that human connection between a brand and, and the human who's consuming those products um, and maintain that in a changing environment? This is a really great question. Uh, and, and I, I say it's, and I don't say that lightly. There are a bunch of people that have demonstrated that they beat the average S&P 500. And, you know, it starts with Jim Collins in the 90s, when mm-hmm. he's good to great companies. Half of them are dead now. Right. Or, or dying. <laughs> right. Then you have design thinking. Uh, there was a great book written a few years ago that never really made it as big as Jim Collins, but to great. That was about firms of endearment, about purpose-driven companies. Mm-hmm. And they all demonstrated that they beat the S&P 500. What I just said a few minutes ago is that that's not a big deal. S&P 500 companies suck, okay, in general. Now, having said that, it is, would be incredible if someone had shown me data that companies that don't care about product design do better than companies that do, right? 
it's pretty logical that they should. The thing that I would submit to your listeners is think about your business holistically from, from soup to nuts, from purpose to your design and value proposition to your adoption curve and how you build a following of customers and consumers to your business model, to your organizational culture and structure. You know, organizations do exactly what they're designed to do. And if you're not happy with the outcome of your, of your business uh, structure, then you have to change your business structure. Otherwise, right. you're gonna keep getting the same outcomes. Right. And last but not the least, the communication piece. The, and this, this is one of the reasons why, Jay, my TEDx talk is called, entitled The Seven Disciplines of Transcendent Brands. It's not any one of these things at work. Uh, none of them are you know, silver bullets. You have to really think holistically. And that's one of the reasons why founder-driven companies do so much better is because founders behave very differently than professional CEOs. They right. tend to cut through the clutter and the, and the egos and the functional uh, biases by saying, this is what we are aiming for. And so you all better align or you're out. Whereas in other companies, we allow functional leaders to have disproportionately higher say in what they do uh, than is actually required to create that great human experience that, uh, that we were talking about. So I do believe that design thinking is very important, but design thinking devoid of purpose and strategy can lead to great, beautiful products that don't have any real meaning underlying them. Right. So they need to connect. And once you connect them, then the two plus two becomes much more than four. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way I think about it is, you know, the businesses exist to create value. And the, the capitalist thinking is that businesses exist to create value for the shareholders, which is true, but businesses also exist to create value for customers. Because if you create a product nobody wants, the business can't earn money and that's not creating value for the shareholders. If you do something that's solely based on business interest and not based on the interest of the customer, eventually that's going to catch up to you and you're no longer going to have a business. You could also yes. on the flip side, build a product that everybody wants, but you're not doing it efficiently enough so that the company can make money. And therefore the business is going to go out of business and the product and the business dies and that doesn't help anybody. So you have to find that balance between creating something that really genuinely creates value for its customers, for its users, and captures value for the business at the same time. And that is the magic of, of I think what you're saying is that when you, when you focus on that, going back to Simon Sinek's circle, beginning with why, when you focus on that, why we exist and what the purpose is, and that permeates the, the fabric of the entire organization, that's the secret sauce. It's not just design thinking. It's not just the, what Jim Collins pointed out in Good to be Great. It's not just culture. It's all those things combined. Exactly. And, and you know where this thing falls apart the most often, which is really fascinating to me? is this concept of core competency and the concept of, uh, you know, stick to your knitting and leverage our assets. Uh, mm -hmm. And it really comes to the rubber really hits the road when it comes to business model. Because typically once a company has built a business on a particular business model, they tend to be extremely 
extremely leery of changing anything in that business model because it's optimized by that point. Right. And any change to it causes chaos. Right. And that's why startups have a great opportunity because they can build new business models that are purpose-driven. And why is that important and how that relates to your point about shareholder versus customer is that shareholders will typically feel alarmed if a company was to say, oh, my business model is not adequate for me to continue to grow, so I'm going to create a new one. And so then now I've introduced risk and fear, right. and that is going to depress your uh, stock price. However, a startup can come up with a new business model that is optimized to make money based on the purpose by which the company exists, rather than now letting the tail wag the dog. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where a lot of companies fail in transformative innovation is because they can't get out of the mental model that they, they do need to think outside of that core competency. Right. Uh, core competency is one of those 20th century management doctrines that is absolutely, and this is going to sound sacrilege, but is obsolete. I believe that if you go into your business saying, I have no core competency that I'm going to, that I'm going to consider to be a sacred cow, the only thing that I'm driven by is purpose and customer and human experience. I will change my business models if needed. And this brings me to my other mantra, which is dream massive, but start tiny. You don't have to start new business models and by over-investing it. You start by testing it really small right. and validating it. And once you have it validated, it proves that it has a return on investment. Then you get the money to go and replicate it because you know exactly what you're going to get from that, uh, from scaling it. Right. But, uh, or at least the uncertainty yeah. is much less because you've tested and proven that that hypothesis is going to work. That if you do this, you're going to get this result. Right. And, and that gives investors confidence. You know, if, if there's anything investors hate, it's uncertainty. And you know, the, uh, the hypothesis testing and, and validating that these changes to the product or to the business model or to the organizational culture will work, help people get over that uncertainty, which leads to creating more value for everybody. And a big part of our training program is how do you build this little satellite that can leverage the strengths of the large organization, but be insulated from its uh, anxieties and, you know, uh, psychological maladies, if you will. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and it's easy, it's easier done than said, you know, and I say that deliberately. It's not hard to do. It's very hard to talk about it because you're going to be ridiculed inside your position. Right, right. Uh, and that brings us kind of full circle to your point when we began the conversation is that it's not about the technical ability or the financial ability to execute change. It's overcoming the psychological uh, boundaries and shifting the mindset that prohibits companies from achieving that sustainable differentiation. Absolutely. Yeah. There's one other quick thought I want to refer back to what we, what you said earlier about, you know, customer value and then shareholder value, you know, the 21st century, because of the proliferation of information and the increased transparency under and scrutiny under which companies have to operate now, I'm finding that companies that look not just from a customer perspective or a shareholder perspective, but from a community perspective are actually getting far greater returns than companies that are not. And the reason I say this is it's, it's not just about, you know, 
you know, when, when Nike got caught with sweatshops in Asia, what happened to them? It's because people now expect companies to be good citizens of the countries in which they operate. Right. And if you're not, and if you're not transparent about that, uh, they don't expect you to be perfect, but they expect you to be well-intentioned. Right. Yeah. You don't have to win every time, but you have to try. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I a hundred percent agree. Um, well, I want to be respectful of time. This has been a fantastic conversation and I know that you and I could sit around probably for months on end talking about all this stuff and, and never run out of, of interesting ideas. Um, but I, let's go ahead and bring it to a close for today. Um, I really appreciate your time and I would love to do this again. And someday when, um, when it's okay to, to go out and, and meet together in, in real life, I'd love to do that again. Um, I, I miss our conversations. And so I really value that, uh, you know, we took some time today to talk about this stuff. So if anyone has ideas about or wants to talk to you about their ideas or has questions, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Uh, the best thing to do right now would be to go to our website, blueearthtribal.com. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a work in progress. We are developing a new platform to help founders and inventors and entrepreneurs inside large organizations develop the skills and, and practices to develop transformative innovation. Uh, but you can go onto the site uh, and, you know, uh, and just contact us through that. Great. BlueEarthTribal.com. We'll link that up in the show notes. UJ, again. Much appreciated. Thanks for the time today. Great conversation as always. And I look forward to seeing you again soon. Wonderful. That's it for today. Design Driven is brought to you by Nine Labs, guiding innovators and product teams through executing their vision. Find out how they can help improve your digital products at NineLabs.com. Have comments, questions, or an idea you'd like us to cover? Point your browser to designdriven.biz and click Contact Us at the top of your screen. We'd love to hear from you. Tell your friends and colleagues about the Design Driven Pod. Post on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or send them an email and tell them to go to designdriven.biz or wherever they find their podcasts. Until next time, remember what Thomas Watson, founder of IBM, said. Good design is good business.